Good morning. Glad to have you here this morning. Uh, so we begin, I want to think just a second about it. Have you ever heard when uh, somebody really makes an extraordinary claim? Maybe uh, your uh, fishing buddy, the one time you don't go out with him, he comes back and he says, I caught a fish that was this big, right? That's, and you go, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe not. You kind of have a little bit of skepticism about these, these extraordinary claims. Or if you grew up in my house, your dad says, you know, I was Superman. I was the guy who played Superman and I was the guy who played Rocky in the Rocky movies. And when you're five years old, that sounds plausible, but you're kind of like, eh, I'm not sure about that. You know, these sometimes we get claims that are that you think, well, maybe maybe that is maybe it's not. But but a lot of times those types of things like how big the fish is or those types of things really aren't that important. You know, whether you believe it or not, it's kind of like, well, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. But today we're going to talk about, uh, as, you, as we look in the series we've been talking about, Walking with Jesus, we're going to see a claim that Jesus makes today that is huge. And it's not uh, an insignificant little thing that you can just blow off. It's really to the very heart of who he is and what he did and what he said. And it's important that we look at his claim and take it seriously. It's really a, a very... Um, I'll, I'll say it like this. As we, as we walk through it today, there's a line in the sand drawn with the way Jesus talks. And you're either going to accept what he says or you're not. One or the other. There's no, there's no on the fence here. And uh, so as we, as we look at what he says, we're going to be, just so you know, if you want to turn there with me, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to look at verses 16 to about 30. <clears throat> and as we do that... Uh, I want to set the stage because what we've been doing in this in this sermon series is we've, we've called it walking with Jesus. And what we've been doing each week is going along kind of with the beginning of Jesus's ministry, really looking chronologically. We're really just hitting on the things that he did right at the beginning. And what we've seen so far, you know, he, he goes out and he's preaching and teaching with authority. Um, it tells us in Scripture over and over that he didn't preach like the scribes or those that they had heard before, but he taught with, as one with authority. And a few weeks ago, we talked about that. There's a reason that Jesus speaks with authority, because he's not a teacher who's mastered the material, but he's the author of the material. He's the author of the story. So he speaks with this authority. And we see that as he walks. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about him going into the temple and cleansing the temple. So he's gone in and he's cleansed the temple. There's commerce and there's trade going on and he throws all that out. And uh, so he's had this real dynamic ministry. But all along as he's teaching and he's going and he's doing these things, he's uh, healing people of diseases. We see him doing miracles and he's healing people of uh spiritual problems, casting out demons. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So all this has happened in a pretty short time span. Jesus's official ministry starts and then all of a sudden all these things, boom, boom, boom. Now today we're going back. We're, we're not, but not even a full year into his public ministry, but he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth. And that's where we're going to be this morning. He goes and he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom, as it tells us. And he goes in and he makes some really extraordinary claims. So that's where we're going to be this morning. That kind of catches us up to where we are. But let's read Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into it. And it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mists, he went away. Let's uh, pray and then we're going to look at that. And as I, I pray, as we begin each week, I'm going to ask this morning that as I pray that you would pray with me, that you would pray that the Holy Spirit comes and moves and shows you what he would have for you in this text. So pray with me as I pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We do confess that without your Holy Spirit, without you moving, that this would be a, just it would be fruitless. It would be a waste of time that we need you here, that we are fully reliant on you coming and opening our eyes to see this, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would show us exactly what you would have for us from this passage, and that we would see you more clearly in the, the beauty and wonder of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we begin this morning, we're going to see Jesus really forces us into a decision, and he does so. And uh, I want to see, uh, I want us to ask three questions about that. He's, he's really putting us into this decision. And the first is, how does he force us into this decision? What does he do here that kind of forces you to look at him one way or the other? And then the second thing we're going to see is a lot of people, I mean, I'm, I'm not spoiling the story for you. I just, I just read it to you. They're trying to throw him off the cliff by the end of this. Right, so something happens in here that's preventing them from seeing him for who he is. So what is it that's preventing them? And then lastly, how can we get past that problem, that thing that prevents us, this roadblock that prevents us? So first, what does Jesus do to, to uh, get us off the fence, to force our hands, so to speak, to, to make us enter into a decision about who he is? And the first thing he does is he goes in. And he's returning home, and I want us to get the theme because he's returning home. He's the hometown guy. He's come back. People have heard these stories about who he is, and they're, they're crowded into the synagogue because he's going to be there. And he comes in, and he comes into the synagogue, and he, uh, he walks right in, and they, they're going to have him speak that day. He's kind of taking the, the place of a, of a teacher, and he comes up, and they hand him the scroll, and he opens it to Isaiah 61. And... Uh, this is what he says. So they give it to him and he, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And then Luke tells us, and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And I want us to see this picture. Jesus sits down. It sounds weird to us because if I stood up and said, okay, this is the sermon. And I said, I read the passage and then I sat down and everybody would be like, what's going on? In their culture, Jesus sits down. He's taking the place of the teacher. The rabbi would sit and the people would sit around and listen to him. So he's sitting down. But you almost get this sense the way Luke writes that there's that he pauses for a second because it says all the eyes were on him. And you can see, you know, that the synagogue is filled and everybody wants to see about Jesus and they've heard these things and it's all quiet and everybody's watching and everybody laser focus on Jesus. And then he says this in verse 21. And he began to say to them, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus right there draws a line in the sand. And he gives us, uh, you're either here or you're here. You're either with what I'm saying or you're not. Because what he just said is, he read from Isaiah 61. Isaiah chapter 61 is a messianic prophecy about the Messiah who would come. And Jesus stands up and he reads it. And then he stops and he sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what Jesus in effect is saying, and everyone would have known it there, is I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that the whole Old Testament talks about and points to. I'm the one that you read about when you come to the synagogue each week and you read these different passages and look forward to the Messiah coming. He says, it has been fulfilled today in you hearing. And all of a sudden it's, oh, that's a pretty big claim he makes. He says right there at the beginning, he, he, he draws this line in the sand. And the, and the reality is, Oftentimes we, we want to take Jesus and make him into a good teacher or he's this or he's that. Or Jesus doesn't give you that. Right? He doesn't allow you that. He makes you choose one or the other. Right? A good teacher who's just a good guy and a charismatic leader doesn't claim to be the Messiah. It's either he's crazy or he's who he says he is. He gives you this. He draws the line in the sand and that's what he does right from the get go. He comes in and he tells them that this is this is where it is. And I want us to think about that, and I want this to be in your mind this morning when you think about who Jesus is and if you're, you're claiming uh, him as your Savior, that if you're a Christian and you've come to faith or maybe you're just considering who he is, the reality is there, there's no on the fence with Jesus. He's either Lord over your life or he's a crazy man that you shouldn't listen to. It's one or the other. There's, there's really no in-between to just take him as a good teacher, and we'll talk about why in just a second. But, so he draws this line in the sand. And I want us to think, what is now the second question? What's the problem? What keeps them from seeing it? How does this go from, look, look with me in verse uh, 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So how do we go from that to, and they rose up and drove him out of town and ready to throw him off a cliff. Okay, something happens here. There's a couple things that keeps them from seeing what Jesus says and I want us to consider that for just a second. So look at verse 22, the last of verse 22. It says, They marveled at his gracious words and were coming from his mouth. And then they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And here's, here's the first catch. The first problem on why they don't see him for who he is. Right? They're sitting around. They're saying, Oh, he's got great teaching. And oh, listen to what he's saying. And he's done all these things. And then all of a sudden somebody goes, Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Jesus' From right here in Nazareth, the, the guy we know. And all of a sudden there's this catch. 
And really what's behind it when we start to think about it, the thing that trips them up is, well, wait a second. He's claiming to be the Messiah. You know, we're okay, but we know him, right? That's, that's the objection. And what you're really getting at here is the objection of Jesus being just a man who's a good teacher and Jesus being deity, being God in human flesh. Because suddenly when he makes these claims and then they start going, well, coming to hear him teach is one thing. He's our, he's our guy, our hometown guy, and he's a good teacher. But now he's saying something much greater than that. And all of a sudden there's this catch. And as I read this and studied it and thought about it this week, um, it's not unlike the catch that, that trips a lot of people up today, although for different reasons. You know, they, they see Jesus as the hometown guy that was around and they knew him and they say, well, he can't be God. He can't be the Messiah. We, we know him. And it's almost like their closeness. They couldn't get their head around that. Today, we dismiss Jesus, the claim of his deity, the incarnation, God in the flesh, a lot of times under the cloak of science, we'll say, well, Jesus couldn't be God because we know you can't raise from the dead and we know scientifically you can't have miracles and we have all these things. And we do the same thing today. We dismiss them, but we do it for different reasons. We do it because in our culture we go, oh, we're so enlightened. We figured everything out. And through science and through our methods, we've decided that he can't be this. So he must just be a good teacher. Right. That's that's what we do. We make him into something and we do that. And I just want to say real briefly, because I, I feel like that's so strong in our culture today. People are fine with Jesus as teacher, leader, charismatic guy. But don't tell me he's the son of God. Um, I was actually reading a book. Uh, oh, when was it? A couple of years ago. And the guy was it was a, a believer and a non-believer. And he was interviewing the guy and he's asking him all these questions and they get to his faith. And he says, oh, yeah, you so you're a Christian. The guy's telling him, yes. And he says, well, you re- he said, I, I can get that Jesus was a great teacher and I get that he was a charismatic leader and maybe even the greatest human who's ever lived. But son of God, really? Come on. You know, that's the question he asked the guy. And, and what he did, what he answered in the book, the way he answered it is exactly kind of what I just said about the line being drawn in the sand. He said, you can't have it one or the other because Jesus can't be a good teacher. He can't just be a guy that you follow. He's either Lord of your life or he's a raving lunatic. There's, there's, no, there's no difference. I mean, there's no either or. It's, it's, that's it, that you can't sit on the fence with it. And Jesus kind of brings them into that, and they really struggle with this as they're sitting in the synagogue because of their closeness to him. And we struggle with it today because of science or whatever. And just to answer that, if you have that objection, I know when Joanna, my wife, and I first met, and we got to know each other. That was one of her big hang-ups all the time about she has a very scientific mind. And what about this? And what about that? And, and, uh, but I, I want to answer it this way, just if, that, if you're letting that really catch you up. We've taken science in our culture today, and we've let it overstep its bounds greatly. Science is simply observing what we can see and then reporting it and coming up with hypotheses and theories based on what we can see. And when science moves into the realm of worldview and belief and all these other things, it's speaking to something that it's not even supposed to speak to. It's, you, you understand that. It's outstepped its boundaries. And that's all I'm going to say on that. I, if you have questions about that and that's the way your mind works, I'd love to talk to you about it. We'll sit down and we'll, we'll go deeper than that. But just to say there's so many times that gets tripped up, and I don't want you to let that dismiss it based on that. But really the first, so the first objection we see is really a head argument. Well, we know this guy. 
We know Jesus and we've seen him. This is Joseph's son. Same thing today, the same thing that trips us up today. Well, he can't really be God, can he? And it's this thing in our head that we can't get around. But, but the second part, and really the second objection, goes much deeper. It goes to a much deeper heart-level objection. And that's what we're going to see the second part. So look at verse 23. And I want to remind you from a couple weeks ago, John chapter 2. When we were in John chapter 2, we talked about how it said at the end of that passage, Jesus knew what was in men's hearts. He could see through them. And in, in a... That's literally what it means. He could see what was in man and he knew who was truly believing and who was trying to use him and who was trying to get something from him. And it says he can see through. So when we read in verse 23 what Jesus is going to say here, this is not mere speculation of of what somebody might be thinking. Jesus is speaking to the heart issue in the synagogue that day. He could see exactly what was going on. So when he says in verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What it does is it reveals the very heart issue. And we've been talking about this, and this happens a lot as Jesus moves through, especially early in his ministry, is that everywhere he goes, that uh, people are, uh, okay, I hear your teaching and what you're saying is really great. And they marvel, as it says up here in verse 21, they, they marvel at the teaching and the authority. And now it's okay, now jump through hoops and prove it. Show us. Impress me. Right? Jesus, dance for me. It's kind of what they're saying. Get up. And he sees that. He sees the unbelief and he sees the skepticism and he sees right through their hearts and he sees it. And he says, so that he says, doubtless you'll say to me, do something magnificent now so we can see. And then in verses 25 to 27, he tells a story from from the Old Testament. And instead of doing that, instead of saying, okay, now I'm going to perform some miracles, he tells this story. And he tells the story of, of Elijah and Elisha. And what he says is, he tells them, he says, just like, uh, where is it, in verse 25, I tell you the truth, there were many widows in, the, in Israel in the days of Elijah. And there was this great famine. And he says, but God came only, sent Elijah. Uh, verse 26, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath. So he says, Hey, this happened way back. People were skeptical of a prophet that God sent, and he only sent him to this one lady in the middle of the famine. Okay. Then he says in verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the, the Syrian. So God, so Jesus says, he tells us this story. Now, why in the world does he go... This may be kind of confusing. You read it and you go, okay, they're asking for a miracle. And he goes back and recounts some Old Testament stuff. And that's it. You know, he tells them. And it really makes them angry. And you may read that and go, why in the world are they so angry from just that? But I want you to see what he just told them and what he just said to them. He tells the story. And part of the telling of the story is he's saying, here I am. And I'm the Messiah. And this is what you've been waiting for. Remember, he's in a synagogue surrounded by Jewish people that have been pouring over the scriptures and looking for the Messiah. And he said, he's, uh, he's pointing to them that God is the one that's going to reveal who I am. And I'm not going to jump through hoops for you because God is sovereign. Right? You see what he's saying? Because, and not only that, he tells them, he gives these two examples of how God comes to those outside of Israel. Right? Both examples. Non, 
Israelites when Israel had rejected their prophet. And he says, well, fine, God went to this guy and to this lady and he went to them alone. And I want you to see what Jesus is saying here, because what he's saying is I'm not going to jump through hoops and I don't have to prove myself to you because I am God in the flesh and I'm sovereign. He's going right to the sovereignty of God. God is in control here. And it's not just, uh, okay, now you tell me something to do and I'll jump through hoops for you. That's not how it works. Jesus is, is, is flipping it the other way and saying, I'm God and I'm the one who comes to you and I do for you. You don't make demands of me. You see the difference there. And, you, and it makes, it infuriates them for a couple reasons. One, it infuriates them because the sovereignty of God is kind of a hard thing to take. Sometimes you go, oh, wait a second. Sovereign, God does what he does because he's God. That's kind of the, the gist of it. And that's, that's hard to take. But then he also says, you're not saved. And, and this is what he's telling them. And this would have been clear to all of them. He gives these two examples and he says, you're not saved by being Jewish. Right? The Messiah is not coming and I'm not here at your beck and call just for you. I've come for the world is essentially what he's saying. And that infuriates them. How dare you say that it's not? Uh, their exclusivity is exposed. And I want you to think about the heart issues that are behind this. Because really what's happening when they say, when they're thinking, which Jesus sees, do some miracles for us to prove your worth to us. Right? What they're saying is, I'm the one that's in control of, I'll make the decision on who you are. I'm it. And what Jesus does is he turns it and he says, no, you won't. God makes the decision. God is sovereign. He turns it on his head. And then he tells that story to say that, to illustrate it to him. You follow, you follow that. It's a huge thought when he gets to that. But the heart condition that's under that, and we talk about this often, our sinful condition is to make ourselves the center of our own life. We're, we're the center. Each person, we, we were made to be in relationship with God as him as our center, but because of as our, did I say center? Yeah. That's not right. <laughs> Him as our center, right? God is to be the center of our lives, right? When, we, when sin entered the world, the sinful condition is we make it all about me, right? And that's what everybody in the synagogue is doing. I'll decide, Jesus, if you're really God, you do some things and prove your worth to me. You see what's happening there? That's, that's really what's behind it. And Jesus kind of goes, oh, wait a second, that's not how it works. He's, tell, he's showing them by this story that it's, that it's the other way around. And, and he speaks to their, their arrogance, but he also speaks to their exclusivity. Because they're thinking, oh, the Messiah comes and the Jewish people. And he says, well, let me, let me recount some stories for you when God went outside the Jewish people. That God came to save all, all and not just you. So we, we get that all the time. It, you, it pops up in different ways. It pops up in churches. Even within the church, we'll say... Uh, we may say we like to make divisions. Well, this, these people look the right way and they dress a certain way, so they're okay. But these people, I don't know about that guy over there. He looks whatever. And we make these weird divisions because we want to make it exclusive. I'm in because I'm like this. And you see what's at the heart of that is I'm making it about me, right? I'm making it about what I've done and what I look like and how well I'm doing. And we, and we try to make it into division. Or maybe... Outside of the church, just religion in general today. I say this off. If you go and ask uh, any friends you have, non-Christian friends, and, and it won't be without, I don't want to generalize every single, but a lot, a, a large majority, you ask them to define what Christianity is. 
And what they'll tell you is you follow the Ten Commandments and you do what God tells you and you follow it to the best of your ability. And if you do that, he'll accept you. That, that's what religion is to the world today, which, by the way, that is not what Christianity is. We, we say this every week, but I always feel like when I come to this, I have to say it's what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. And it's not what I can do, but what he's done for me. But we like to twist it. And the reason we like to twist it is we've made sin has made us the center of our own world. So we make it all about us. And so when you get to the heart of that, uh, even the very heart of that is the wanting Jesus to just be a good teacher. You follow that? If if, uh, my sinful heart wants my salvation to be something I've done, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this pretty well. So now God's got to accept me. I want Jesus to be just a good teacher because then there's some things I follow. And if I do them pretty well, then I'll be okay. And that's what they were doing even there. You know, even even there. This is Jesus' son. This is just a and you see it all the way through. And I'm going to one more example of this because it goes all the way through even to the church. Maybe you you are a Christian. And you've grasped that God saves you have no doing of your own. It's through the. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice and what he's done for you, the very heart of the gospel. Jesus came to live the life that you couldn't live, to, to die and take your penalty and then to give you the benefits. But what happens is we even twist that. I'll tell you how we, we then say, well, yes, I believe that, and I believe that because I was smart enough to figure it out. Or God chose to show that to me because I'm a pretty good person. And you see how we get it even there. We even, and that's why it's so important that we go back to the gospel over and over and over and preach it to ourselves and preach it to one another and go back and back because it's so easy to start to twist it and make it about us. But what Jesus does here is the way he answers. And and by the way, that's, I said, what is the problem? What's the problem here? The first problem is the closeness. Isn't this Jesus' son? The humanity of Christ. But the second part, the really deeper problem, is we want to make our salvation about us. We want to twist it to be, I do something. And Jesus cuts right through all of that in what he says here. Because he says, no, at one time God came to this woman and to this man and God was acting. And so we get to what is the answer? How do we get around this massive stumbling block? And the answer is simply that only through God's sovereign grace can you ever see him. Only if he softens your heart and allows you to see who he is that you can ever get around it. And you say, okay, well, what does that mean? What about this guy I know that's not a believer? Or what about I have these doubts and how do I get? I'm going to say the application to that is you need to be on your knees in prayer before the Lord. If you have doubts about some of those things and you're not sure how they work out, or maybe you have the the scientific roadblock kind of in your mind, it's only through on your knees, asking him to open your heart to see him clearly for who he is because God is sovereign and he's sovereign all the way down the line. And it only happens through him softening your heart. And that's the first part, really. The, 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 and, that's, and that's the essence of what Jesus is saying here when he says, no, but God came to this person and to this person and he was doing it and I'm not going to do these miracles for you because God is sovereign. It's his sovereign grace alone. That's the first part. But once as you pray and he begins to soften your heart, what leads us out of this is we begin to see ourselves for who we are. We begin to see who I am. And what I mean by that is when we see who we are biblically, who we are, I hate to break it to you, but it's not a pretty picture. 
And that, that includes all of us, every single one of us without fail. Scripture says that there's nothing good in us. That when sin came in and entered our lives, we are a mess. And God does, through his grace, allow good things to happen. And he shows us things and he allows us to use us. But any good thing that I do or I say or comes out of my mouth is only by the grace of God and nothing else. The only way I could ever come to faith in him is because he opened my eyes to see him and he came and he regenerated me and he did it. And you see how all the way down the line it points you back to what he's done for you. So when you say, oh, well, well, how did you become a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Instead of saying, and, and uh, be real careful how I say it. Oftentimes we say, well, I made a decision for Christ. I chose to see him and I chose. I'm going to affirm that's true. You did. But the only way you made a decision to choose Christ is because he first chose you. Because he cuts through and he opens your eyes to see it. So, in, so in, a, in essence, we could say he's the one that chose us. And then when you get down, and I said this often, I, I love the way, uh, I heard this from Edmund Clowney. He used to say this over and over. Then you get to why did he choose, well, why in the world did he, he chose you, he chose to love you because he loves you. And that's it. He loved you because he loved you. It's his love all the way down the line. It's all him. It all points back to him every single spot. And until we go back to that and go back to that, all those little things start to creep in. Well, maybe he loved me because I'm a pretty good person. No, he loved you because he loved you. Well, maybe he loved me because, I, you know, uh-uh. it's because he, it, it all goes back to his sovereign grace. And it takes us back right to the beginning of this passage. And I want us to end here in Isaiah 61 with what Jesus says. And he, he, he takes us back to it because we can so twist even this passage, even what he says, to make it into something it shouldn't be. So if you go back to verse 18 and, and that quote from Isaiah 61, and he talks about uh, proclaiming the good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and liberty to the oppressed and all this. And, and oftentimes you'll hear people today and they take that passage and they twist it to mean this. We... Uh, should follow Jesus and as, as Jesus followers we go and we relieve the needs of the poor and free the oppressed and we do that and that's what Christianity is now two things I want to say about this first we are to do those things I want to affirm that we're to do that that we are to meet needs where we see them we're to look for injustices and look to correct them. God is all about that. It's all throughout Scripture. He cares about the poor and the oppressed and all those things. And we absolutely are supposed to do them. I'm not saying we're not. But when we make this passage and who Jesus is just that, what we're doing is we're making it a workspace righteousness of something you and I do to earn favor with God. And that is not the gospel. And it's even right here in this passage. And I'm going to tell you, this is... So uh, the key to what Jesus says here, and if you look at verse 18 with me, he says this uh, right in the middle. He came to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight of the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. He uses liberty twice. And in Luke's gospel and in the, the book of Acts, the two books Luke wrote, his two volume. Every single time Luke uses the word liberty, it has to do with forgiveness of sins. So when you get that, when you see that and you start to read this, what Jesus is saying is I have come 
I have come to for the forgiveness of sins to the captives, and I have come for the forgiveness of the sins of those who are oppressed. And he goes so much deeper than just let's go meet physical needs. You see that? What he's really saying and what he's really getting at is that I've come to offer forgiveness of sins to the poor. And when you start to think of it that way, when you see the light of the gospel, the reality is he's not just talking about the poor who are physically poor. He's talking about all of us. I came for forgiveness of sins for all of you. And the only way that happens and the only way you see it is you put your faith in who God is and his sovereignty and his grace alone and nothing else. And the wonderful thing is the second part of that is when we get that, when we get that we're saved completely and totally alone by God's sovereign grace and nothing else, it frees us to go and give generously and to meet the needs of the physical poor. And the physically oppressed and those because the reality is it changes our whole mindset to everything we have is a gift from God. Everything, all that we have, everything we do, everything good that happens is through his sovereign grace and nothing else. So then it frees us to go do the second part. You see that? So it is both. But more importantly, it's the forgiveness of sins of what Jesus came to do for us. That's that's the foundation under it. I know that's a lot to kind of jump through. Um, I'm, I'm going to make a, a request, if you would, as we leave today. We're going to take communion in a minute. But as we leave and we, we share a meal together, let's talk about this. You know, we've been spending time in uh, Sunday school talking about community and how we grow closer together and how we hold each other, build each other up. And I can't think of a better way than when we go and we sit and we join together for a meal that we we marvel over God's grace together, and we talk about it. Because what will come out in those conversations is you start talking to people who have come into contact with Jesus, and this will make perfect sense. I am saved by his grace alone and nothing else. And it will be so clear. So when we talk about Oh, here's the exegetical and make sure we got this word and make sure that's important. I'm not I'm not making I do that all the time. So I'm not making light of that. But when we start to walk and we start to talk about it and we start to share it together, then we see it so much more clearly. So let's make sure that as we go out today and we spend time in fellowship together, let us thank him that he came to proclaim liberty to the poor, because that's us. That's all of us. And the only way that we can ever be in his good graces is his sovereign grace and what he's done for us. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. Uh, I thank you for texts like this that maybe are a little bit heavier and a little harder sometimes to wade through. We thank you that uh, there, there's great reward in digging deeply in your word and seeing what you say and what you would have for us. I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the beauty of your grace and how it cuts through down to every level that it's all you're doing, that it's all your love for us. It's all what you've done on our behalf. And we can never, ever thank you enough for that. I thank you for all you've done for us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.